0: Welcome to Craftlit. The podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. episode seventy five Isn't it Romantic? This episode of Craftlet is sponsored by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. Well hello! Oh, I am so tired. Um, so here's the thing. Before we dive into Frankenstein, we need to establish some ground rules, and the ground rules are about the romantics. Most of us, when we think of romantic, we are thinking of lowercase r romantic. That's kind of the Hallmark card romantic. That's, that's the romantic of the, the ooey gooey spongy feeling that you get when you look at someone you love or when you looked at someone you love when that love was new. That's the kind of, (laughs) did that sound jaded? Honestly, this, the funny thing is I still look at my husband like that, which is on the whole really very cool. Um, But that's lowercase r romantic when people talk about the romantics, they are speaking of a group of people who were responding to the enlightenment and rationality and science by saying, you know, there is more to heaven and earth, Horatio, than is dreamt of in your philosophy. They came in and said, you know, intuition matters. And There are things that occur in life that simply cannot be explained scientifically or rationally. And nature is beautiful and awesome, in the original sense of the word, and spectacular. And all of these things, when you look at them, and you spend a lot of time looking at them, which these gentlemen and women did, all of these things really move the soul in very meaningful ways. And, gee, wouldn't it be nice to start paying attention to these things again? That's one of the basic themes that runs throughout romantic poetry and romantic literature. However, what this inevitably did was descend into Gothic literature, because if you spend that much time navel-gazing or that much time focusing on well, things like the supernatural, eventually stuff's going to start getting creepy. Um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge is an excellent example of someone who had a very difficult time um, keeping up with this outlook. And he wound up getting rather depressed and eventually addicted to laudanum. And some of his best poems came out of laudanum stupors. Kublai Khan um, was something that frustrated him for the rest of his life because he came out of a laudanum episode and scribbled down as much as he could remember of the poem that was floating around his mind during that episode. And then someone knocked on the door and pulled him out of that reverie. And he was never able to capture the end of the poem again, at least not to his satisfaction. Shelley uh, led a rather tortured existence. He had a first wife and then he had Mary Shelley as a very, very, very young second wife. And um, his first marriage was fraught and ended badly as all things fraught do. There's uh, Lord Byron, George Gordon, Lord Byron, who was hot. And when I mean hot, I mean like Rupert Everett in An Ideal Husband Hot. He's just, he was, he was the playboy of the Western world. And Um, at least by Curious, if not actively by. He wrote a lot, a lot of wonderful literature that we will not be listening to early on. I may kick in and play some of his stuff later, but he's difficult. Although anyone, honestly, anyone could read She Walks in Beauty Like the Night and get the picture. And then there's Wordsworth, who was kind of the granddaddy of all of them. And we will start with Wordsworth tonight. You can go back as far as William Blake, the guy who did Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright, and Little Lamb Who Made Thee. And he is often wrapped up with the romantics, but he's kind of the weird fringe early point to all things romantic. Um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is more or less the death knell of the romantic movement, at least in Britain. Um, After that, things started to change more, and the Industrial Revolution really took hold, and uh, Dickens started. For tonight's episode, I had an opportunity to sit down with Elizabeth, one of our listeners who teaches Shakespeare and romantic literature and women's literature and a whole bunch of other cool stuff. And so this is our conversation introducing four poems from the romantics. So um, I thought maybe maybe we should start with the, um, the depressing ones first. <laughs> sure. And then end with the birdies.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I guess it depends on how you read the Wordsworth, whether you think it's depressing or not I, I kind of feel you know I'm in both minds about it I kind of think it's depressing and I kind of think it, it is uplifting in some ways so
0: yeah I was actually thinking more about the Coleridge being oh um, yeah the the kicker yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah well he was he was pretty pretty depressed as a
2: person he, so. he
0: was a character well first um I mean when when I introduce the romantics I'm gonna introduce kind of the the big picture picture of the romantics mm-hmm. as the the people who are interested in spirituality and nature and then on the weird side the ones who were interested in um the supernatural which is where we wind up getting into frankenstein right but with wordsworth and coleridge to people who don't know a whole lot about the romantics wordsworth and coleridge are going to look like a strange combination to begin with yeah because wordsworth tends to be thought of as kind of an upbeat guy and Coleridge is the guy who was on drugs who wrote Kubla Khan yeah and rhyme of the ancient mariner so where where do we where do we start with the parallel between the two of them
1: I actually think if we look at the immortality ode and dejection they're asking pretty similar questions in fact i think that coleridge wrote dejection initially Responding to the Immortality Ode, and I think he was only responding to the first few stanzas because, you know, Wordsworth and Coleridge were were close friends and they circulated their manuscripts to each other before they were published. So, you know, the Immortality Ode and opens with the phrase "There was a time," and then mm-hmm. Coleridge uses that phrase in, in dejection: "There was a time," you know, and what they're saying is there was a time when. You know, nature was wonderful, and I felt happy, and now I'm depressed, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> I mean, Wordsworth says that right at the beginning. Um, there was a time when Meadow, and stream was appareled in celestial light. It is not now, as it has been of yore. The things which I have seen, I now can see no more. And Coleridge is essentially saying the same thing. There was a time when I could experience joy, And now I can't. Now I'm just depressed, essentially. Yeah, I guess
0: one of the things that I thought was interesting was I kind of felt like Wordsworth, and maybe this is just where where they both fall artistically, is that Wordsworth is more external and Coleridge is more internal.
1: Oh, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. And I, I think that has to do with how they see, you know, the interactions with nature. In Dejection, Coleridge really, I think, comes out of that poem not finding any possibility of nature giving him anything anymore i mean um where does he say it he says um i may not hope from outward forms to win the passion and the life whose fountains are within and he then he says in our life alone does nature live it has to come from inside he says i can't get anything from nature anymore it's not going to help me it's a, I have to pull myself out of this or nothing essentially um which is and pretty
0: tough when you're Coleridge I'm sorry which is pretty tough to do when you're Coleridge yeah
1: i <laughs> <And> sure <laughs> you know you're addicted to the laudanum and and all of that stuff <laughs> um my students always loved that when I told them that he was a drug addict I don't know somehow it oh, yeah. made them you know feel more connected to him some of them at well, least yeah. I don't know Oh. I don't.
0: I don't think that these guys feel so old when you find out that Thoreau was the original hippie and that yeah. Coleridge was addicted to drugs. <laughs> they they don't feel so crusty.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like they're just you know sitting up in some ivory tower writing poetry or something. You know. Exactly. <laughs> um, but Wordsworth, I think, you know, he has the same dilemma. You know, how can I recapture? the joy that I once felt, that I took in nature. And he concludes, well, you know, essentially the same thing as Coleridge, I can't. But his reaction is more positive, which is that he says, well, nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the gra- grass and, and glory in the flower, but I'm not going to grieve. I will take strength from what remains behind from the philosophic mind, from, from being, um, I can still be in nature and still enjoy it it's just that now I'm an adult and, um, you know, I, I have to console myself with philosophy essentially. Um, sorry, do go ahead. Do you
0: think that some of the, well, do you think that some of this with, um, with the two of them, I can't remember how old they were when they wrote this, but is some of this mm-hmm. just an ode to lost youth? It's not so much a change in the external world, um, or, or, a. A loss of appreciation for nature as much as it is I'm not able to roll around in the grass anymore. Yeah. Life is passing me by.
1: Definitely. Um, It looks like they weren't that. I mean Coleridge was born in 1772. I have my book in front of me just so
0: you know. Oh good. (laughs) I couldn't print these out before I called you because I don't have a printer here so I'm looking at a screen.
1: Oh I have my trusty Norton anthology of of literature in front of me. So um, yeah Coleridge was born in 1772 and I think the poem was 1802 so that would only make him, what, 30? 30-something,
0: when yeah. When he's
1: writing this. And I think Wordsworth is roughly the same. So, yeah, for Wordsworth, he ar- that's really, he articulates that very fully in, in the Immortality Ode, that he looks at the children who are bounding around and having fun, and, and you know, he really envies them. Um, and he right. sees the process of aging as, you know, you move away from the light, essentially. You know, heaven surrounds mm-hmm. us in our infancy. And as you, and as you get older, um, you know, the prison house closes on you, he says. So he really is jealous. I think he's envious of, of, of the children because they can just enjoy and they don't think about suffering and death and all this other stuff that you have to think about when you get older.
0: That is boy, that just kind of nails the whole romantic philosophy, too, doesn't it? yeah that the, kind of the the childlike nature is the pure and um and that that's why you go back to nature itself because it's pure yeah and and untouched by these these worries and these woes
2: mm-hmm.
1: definitely and
0: it, it is kind of like the romantic Bible,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, and that's why Wordsworth and Coleridge are so important. I mean, when they published lyrical ballads. You know that was revolutionary, and and they intended it to be. I mean, they they really wanted to to um, revolutionize the way poetry was being written, and and uh, and you know how feeling was expressed in literature. So,
0: was was there much of a backlash? It's one of the things that I never learned in my classes. I, the, my understanding was that the Romantic movement grew out of the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. out of the the tail end of the Enlightenment, and was in fact a reaction to the kind of Uber rationality that was going on yeah. in the in the world at the time. Was there a backlash from the older people, kind of saying, "You young kids, you don't know anything," and you know these upstarts coming in and talking about nature and immortality? Pa, you know, you should be looking at the facts. And
1: I think so. And this is um, where we get into the the fact simply that I'm just not a romantic scholar, <laughs> but I do <laughs> I do seem to remember that you know that there was definitely that this is a controversial work, lyrical ballads and um I mean they were challenging a lot, as you say, of, of the of the ideas that were held at the time, saying, Well, we don't have to be concerned with reason. We wanna we wanna talk about imagination, you know, and emotion and individual consciousness and you know, the internal, not the external and and yeah, in an age of, of scientific advancement and in the industrial revolution and all of that stuff, I yeah, yeah, I believe it was quite controversial um they also just just wanted to challenge the poetic forms of the previous century you know that uh, um you know people like pope who i'm also not a fan of (laughs) um, and dryden and people like that that they you know they just felt that this is too constrictive that you know poetry was too artificial and um I love the, the Wordsworth said that poetry should be the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. And
0: oh, that's right.
1: Yeah, I, and that's a phrase that really um, I remember from my undergraduate romantics class, because I just, at the time, I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <And> it, <laughs> it really appealed to my 19-year-old self, and I didn't like, yeah. I liked that idea much more than the kind of highly formal, very structured, um, you know, previous sorts of forms, which is very ironic given that now I spend my time um, studying Shakespeare, who wrote in a very, you know, (laughs) a very sort of highly formal kind of structure, especially in the song.
0: So I thought I'd stop here and let you actually hear Intimations of Immortality and Dejection, an Ode. The first is by Wordsworth,
3: and the second is by Coleridge. Ode, Intimations of Immortality from Recollections of Early Childhood Read for LibriVox by Elizabeth Clett There was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight, to me did seem apparelled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. It is not now as it hath been of yore. Turn wheresoe'er I may, by night or day, The things which I have seen, I now can see no more. The rainbow comes and goes, and lovely is the rose. The moon doth with delight look round her when the heavens are bare. Waters on a starry night are beautiful and fair. The sunshine is a glorious birth. But yet I know, where'er I go, that there hath passed away a glory from the earth. Now, while the birds sing a joyous song, and while the young lambs bound as to the Tabor's sound, to me alone there came a thought of grief. A timely utterance gave that thought relief, and I again am strong. The cataracts blow their trumpets from the steep, No more shall grief of mine the season wrong. I hear the echoes through the mountains throng. The winds come to me from the fields of sleep, and all the earth is gay. Land and sea give themselves up to jollity, and with the heart of May doth every beast keep holiday. Thou child of joy, shout round me, Let me hear thy shouts, thou happy shepherd boy. Ye blessed creatures, I have heard the call ye to each other make. I see the heavens laugh with you in your jubilee. My heart is at your festival. My head hath its coronal. The fullness of your bliss I feel, I feel it all. O evil day, if I were sullen, while earth herself is adorning this sweet May morning, and the children are culling on every side in a thousand valleys far and wide fresh flowers, while the sun shines warm and the babe leaps up on his mother's arm, I hear, I hear, with joy I hear. But there's a tree of many, one, a single field which I have looked upon, Both of them speak of something that is gone. The pansy at my feet doth the same tale repeat. Whither is fled the visionary gleam? Where is it now, the glory and the dream? Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its setting, and cometh from afar. Not in entire forgetfulness, and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home. Heaven lies about us in our infancy. Shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy, but he beholds the light, and whence it flows, He sees it in his joy. The youth, who daily farther from the east must travel, still is nature's priest, and by the vision splendid is on his way attended. At length, the man perceives it die away and fade into the light of common day. Earth fills her lap with pleasures of her own, yearning she hath in her own natural kind, and even with something of a mother's mind, and no unworthy aim, the homely nurse doth all she can to make her foster child, her inmate man, forget the glories he hath known, and that imperial palace whence he came. Behold the child among his new-born blisses, a six years darling of a pygmy size. See where mid work of his own hand he lies, fretted by sallies of his mother's kisses, with light upon him from his father's eyes. See at his feet some little plan or chart, some fragment from his dream of human life, shaped by himself with newly learned art, a wedding or a festival a mourning or a funeral. And this hath now his heart, and unto this he frames his song. Then will he fit his tongue to dialogues of business, love, or strife. But it will not be long ere this be thrown aside, and with new joy and pride the little actor cons another part filling from time to time his humorous stage with all the persons down to palsied age that life brings with her in her equipage as if his whole vocation were endless imitation. Thou, whose exterior semblance doth belie thy soul's immensity, Thou best philosopher, who yet doth keep thy heritage, Thou eye among the blind, that deaf and silent reets the eternal deep, haunted forever by the eternal mind, mighty prophet, seer blessed, on whom those truths do rest, which we are toiling all our lives to find in darkness lost, the darkness of the grave. Thou, over whom thy immortality broods like the day, a master or a slave, a presence which is not to be put by, to whom the grave is but a lonely bed without the sense or sight of day or the warm light, a place of thought where we in waiting lie. Thou little child, yet glorious in the might of heaven-born freedom on thy being's height, Why, with such earnest pains dost thou provoke the years to bring the inevitable yoke, thus blindly with thy blessedness at strife? Full soon thy soul shall have her earthly freight, and custom lie upon thee with a weight heavy as frost and deep almost as life. O joy! that in our embers is something that doth live, that nature yet remembers what was so fugitive. The thought of our past years in me doth breed perpetual benediction, not indeed for that which is most worthy to be blessed, delight and liberty, the simple creed of childhood whether busy or at rest, with new-fledged hope still fluttering in his breast, Not for these I raise the song of thanks and praise, but for those obstinate questionings of sense and outward things, fallings from us, vanishings, blank misgivings of a creature moving about in worlds not realized, high instincts before which our mortal nature did tremble like a guilty thing surprised. But for those first affections, Those shadowy recollections, which, be they what they may, are yet the fountain light of all our day, are yet a master light of all our seeing, uphold us, cherish, and have power to make our noisy years seem moments in the being of the eternal silence, truths that wake to perish never, which neither listlessness nor mad endeavor nor man, nor boy, nor all that is at enmity with joy can utterly abolish or destroy. Hence, in a season of calm weather, though inland far we be, our souls have sight of that immortal sea which brought us hither, can in a moment travel thither and see the children sport upon the shore and hear the mighty waters rolling evermore. Then sing, ye birds, sing, sing a joyous song, and let the young lambs bound as to the Tabor's sound. We in thought will join your throng. Ye that pipe and ye that play, ye that through your hearts today feel the gladness of the May, what though the radiance which was once so bright be now forever taken from my sight, though nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the grass, of glory in the flower, we will grieve not, rather find strength in what remains behind. In the primal sympathy, which having been must ever be, in the soothing thoughts that spring out of human suffering, in the faith that looks through death, in years that bring the philosophic mind. And, O ye fountains, meadows, hills, and groves, forebode not any severing of our loves, yet in my heart of hearts I feel your might. I only have relinquished one delight to live beneath your more habitual sway. I love the brooks which down their channels fret even more than when I tripped lightly as they. The innocent brightness of a new-born day is lovely yet. The clouds that gather round the setting sun do take a sober coloring from an eye that hath kept watch o'er man's mortality. Another race hath been and other palms are one. Thanks to the human heart by which we live, thanks to its tenderness, its joys and fears, to me the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears. End of poem.
0: All right, so there's your Wordsworth. Now we're going to catch up with... Coleridge, who was responding to this poem and not quite so happy. But then, you know, it's Coleridge.
3: Dejection, An Ode by Samuel Taylor Coleridge Read for LibriVox.org by Elizabeth Klett Late, late yestreen I saw the new moon With the old moon in her arms And I fear, I fear my master dear We shall have a deadly storm. Ballad of Sir Patrick Spence Well, if the bard was weather-wise Who made the grand old ballad of Sir Patrick Spence, This night, so tranquil now, Will not go hence unroused by winds That ply a busier trade Than those which mould yon cloud in lazy flakes, Or the dull sobbing draught That moans and rakes upon the strings of this Aeolian lute, which better far were mute. For lo, the new moon winter bright, and overspread with phantom light, with swimming phantom light, o'erspread, spread but rimmed and circled by a silver thread, I see the old moon in her lap, foretelling the coming on of rain and squally blast. And oh, that even now the gust were swelling, and the slant night shower driving loud and fast. Those sounds which oft have raised me whilst they awed and sent my soul abroad, might now perhaps their wonted impulse give, might startle this dull pain, and make it move and live. A grief without a pang, void, dark, and drear, a stifled, drowsy, unimpassioned grief, which finds no natural outlet, no relief in word or sigh or tear. O lady, in this wan and heartless mood, To other thoughts by yonder throstle wooed, All this long eve so balmy and serene Have I been gazing on the western sky And its peculiar tint of yellow-green. And still I gaze, and with how blank an eye, And those thin clouds above in flakes and bars That give away their motion to the stars, Those stars that glide behind them or between, Now sparkling, now bedimmed, but always seen, Yon crescent moon, as fixed as if it grew in its own cloudless, starless lake of blue, I see them all so excellently fair. I see, not feel, how beautiful they are. My genial spirits fail, and what can these avail to lift the smothering weight from off my breast? It were a vain endeavor, though I should gaze forever on that green light that lingers in the west, I may not hope from outward forms to win the passion and the life whose fountains are within. O lady, we receive but what we give, and in our life alone does nature live. Ours is her wedding garment, ours her shroud, and would we aught behold of higher worth than that inanimate cold world allowed to the poor loveless ever-anxious crowd? (sighs) Ah! From the soul itself must issue forth a light, a glory, a fair luminous cloud enveloping the earth. And from the soul itself must there be sent a sweet and potent voice of its own birth, of all sweet sounds, the life and element. O pure of heart, thou needst not ask of me what this strong music in the soul may be. What and wherein it doth exist, this light, this glory, this fair luminous mist, this beautiful and beauty-making power. Joy, virtuous lady, joy that ne'er was given, save to the pure, and in their purest hour, life and life's effluence, cloud at once and shower. Joy, lady, is the spirit and the power, which wedding nature to us gives in dower. A new earth and new heaven, undreamt of by the sensual and the proud, Joy is the sweet voice, joy the luminous cloud. We in ourselves rejoice. And thence flows all that charms or ear or sight, all melodies the echoes of that voice, all colors as a suffusion from that light. There was a time when, though my path was rough, this joy within me dallied with distress, and all misfortunes were but as the stuff whence fancy made me dreams of happiness. For hope, grew round me like the twining vine and fruits and foliage not my own seemed mine but now afflictions bow me down to earth nor care i that they rob me of my mirth but oh each visitation suspends what nature gave me at my birth my shaping spirit of imagination for not to think of what i needs must feel but to be still and patient all i can and haply by abstruse research to steal from my own nature all the natural man. This was my sole resource, my only plan, till that which suits a part infects the whole, and now is almost grown the habit of my soul. Hence, viper thoughts that coil around my mind, reality's dark dream. I turn from you and listen to the wind, which long has raved unnoticed. What a scream of agony by torture lengthened out that lute sent forth. Thou wind that ravest without, bare crag or mountain tarn or blasted tree, or pine grove whither woodmen never clomb, or lonely house long held the witch's home, methinks were fitter instruments for thee, mad lutenist who in this month of showers, of dark brown gardens, and of peeping flowers, makes devil's yule, with worse than wintry song, the blossoms, buds, and timorous leaves among? Thou actor, perfect in all tragic sounds! Thou mighty poet, even to frenzy bold! What tellst thou now about? Tis of the rushing of an host in rout with groans of trampled men, with smarting wounds, at once they groan with pain and shudder with the cold. But hush, there is a pause of deepest silence, and all that noise is of a rushing crowd, with groans and tremulous shudderings. All is over. It tells another tale, with sounds less deep and loud, a tale of less affright, and tempered with delight. As Otway's self had framed the tender lay. Tis of a little child, upon a lonesome wild, Not far from home, but she hath lost her way, And now moans low in bitter grief and fear, And now screams loud, and hopes to make her mother hear. Tis midnight, but small thoughts have I of sleep, Full seldom may my friend such vigils keep, Visit her, gentle sleep, with wings of healing, and may this storm be but a mountain birth. May all the stars hang bright above her dwelling, silent as though they watched the sleeping earth. With light heart may she rise, gay fancy, cheerful eyes. Joy lift her spirit, joy attune her voice. To her may all things live from pole to pole, their life the eddying of her living soul. O simple spirit! guided from above, dear lady, friend devoutest of my choice, thus mayst thou ever, evermore rejoice.
0: So that's the beginning of our listen to romantic poetry. We are going to go back to my conversation with Elizabeth. I actually cut us off midstream because we started to talk about structure and structured writing and Shakespeare. And that actually leads into what we're going to do next, which is listen to a little Shelley and Keats. So I'm gonna let us pick up the conversation where we ended, right there, with Shakespeare. It's hard it's hard not see, and this is where I become a real lover of Shakespeare. It's hard not to feel, even within the constrained forms that he writes in. Yeah. It's hard not to feel that it is a spontaneous overflow of emotion coming from him as well. Oh, yeah. He just happened to be able to do it in iambic pentameter.
1: Exactly. I think that is one of the things I love about him is that he does combine the two things, the highly structured, very formal form, and then the content. You're right. It seems like it's just this natural overflow of thought that the characters are kind of spilling out, especially in soliloquies and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, and I think when we, when we studied Marlowe, and we, I think the, I read a fragment of something else, but I read Dr. Faustus, I can't even remember how many times, Mm -hmm. um, but it didn't feel that way. I had just assumed that Shakespeare wrote the way people wrote
1: mm-hmm.
0: around him, and it's not. He's very, very different. Yeah,
1: he is, which is why it's so absurd that some people think that, you know, Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare, that it was Marlowe or somebody else.
0: Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, because cause, Marlowe could have switched Faustus off and all the, the kind of mannered yeah. writing that he did in that, and he could just turn on, you know, Mercutio.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> also, there's the small problem that, you know, Marlowe died in 1593, and uh, Shakespeare wrote until...
0: Sixteen, thirteen, sixteen, fourteen. Trifles, mere trifles. In exactly, we can get around that. People who are certain. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's well, and it is uh, the whole. I I find I've been writing poetry recently on demand Mm -hmm. for test prep passages, and they will send me a prototype and say you have to match the line structure, really, and the punctuation. Huh so i have to match if it's a rhyme i have to match the rhyme if it's unrhymed i have to match as close as i can to the syllable right count and and then the punctuation but they'll give me a new topic right and i have found it to be a fascinating procedure because i can do a very specific and intricate replacement of syllables uh-huh. you know and switch it from a poem about a frog to a poem about a bird mm-hmm. <laughs> and i can keep everything but it won't make sense right and then I have to go back and change stuff and I write to them and say you know in order to make this actually a poem that doesn't feel like it was put together by a computer yeah I did have to change punctuation and I did have to change syllables because it it can't be it's not a sonnet right you know it's not a it's not a sonnet form right. and there was a a wonderful what book was that in oh a wrinkle in time Madeline Langle's book I love that book w- do you remember the part where Meg was complaining about being constrained and, and having rules and Miss What's It said to her, think of a sonnet.
1: Oh, yeah. There,
0: there's a very specific structure, but within it, you have complete freedom. Right. And all of a sudden, I thought, you know, this is the problem. Some days, I think this is the problem with our country. But the the idea that having limits placed on you is bad instead of having limits placed on you makes you more creative. Right. Right. You you have and it's human nature to do that and to to go there and then once you've mastered the those structures to break them which I think is where the romantics come in
1: yeah absolutely and I think you know it's also not necessarily you know I don't mean to give the impression that they were saying like oh forms just go out the window or something like that no because
0: like... Shelley wrote sonnets Ozymandias and mm hmm mm-hmm,
1: definitely so and you can see even in the Skylark that you know the the the, the you know poetic form is very set. You know, mm-hmm. it's very, um, you know, I think there's four lines in each stanza and, you know, there's a rhyme scheme and et cetera. It's, um, and, you know, so it seems very kind of form. I'm sorry, five lines in each standa, stanza. But, um, you know, so, yeah, there. you're right. There's a structure in place, but freedom within that structure is unlimited.
0: Yeah, which I think is so cool. And that actually brings us into to Shelley and Keats. Mm-hmm. I. I got to go to the Shelley and Keats Museum really? in Rome, so I got to see Keats. Um, there was a life math- mask and a death mask. Uh huh. He was quite a handsome young man, <laughs> even even dead. I can see why people were all hot and bothered over these guys. Yeah. And my husband told me that there's a statue of Shelley at um, University College at Oxford, and when he he did a summer school program there about four years earlier than I did mine, and he he said the girls in his program one night all snuck out, took off their clothes, and photographed themselves draped over (laughs) (laughs) Shelley's statue of him washed up on the beach.
1: (laughs) That is awesome. Isn't
0: that classic?
1: Oh, my God. You know, what is that about the I mean, I swear to you, when I took the romantics class as an undergraduate, I think Mm -hmm. I was a sophomore, I just kind of had a little crush on my teacher. And it was oh, yeah. where I think it was because his he kind of channeled the romantic, yeah. you know, and he just read them so passionately. He wasn't necessarily like the best looking man, but I, and it wasn't Didn't just matter. me either. A lot of the girls in the class were kind of like,
0: oh, did you write I love you on your eyelids like the girl did? in? <laughs> girl <and Stark? laughs>
1: yeah, I wasn't that bold, actually. <laughs> uh, he probably never knew how I felt about him. <laughs> he probably, I don't know, maybe he maybe he does know. Who knows? Maybe he actively cultivates it. But uh, cult yeah, he was just romantics. so, oh, so into the romantics and he read them with such passion in class. So it appealed um, to my little 19 year old self.
0: Well, yeah. And I, you know, I had a boy who was a gang member in New York mm-hmm. who never did a stitch of work in my class. And it was sophomore year and we did the romantics in Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And we'd made it through. Oh, just a couple poems maybe and maybe it was was only Shelley and Keats at that point because I saved Coleridge for the end and um he came up to me one day and he said you know those are my people oh, really and that was all he said and then he walked out and I thought well I'm not going to miss this opportunity and I went out and bought a book of romantic poetry and I bought him a journal a nice you know little leather bound journal and the next day I brought it in and I said okay your turn Oh. and he would stay in at lunchtime and he would read his romantics and he would write tortured poetry and then I think he did finally graduate but he was it was touch and go he was a bright kid but he had a lot of trouble that is so awesome that you did that isn't it cool though that of all the things that could reach out and touch a 15 year old gang member it's Keats yeah
1: you wouldn't think necessarily (laughs) right but that's great that's really cool. That cool it really gives me hope to hear things like that
0: <laughs> you know they, they come every once in a while when you're out teaching in places like New York you get a few kids coming through who just surprise you one day Yeah. and, if I, and I think it's, it's a testimony not to teachers necessarily as much as the quality of the literature Yeah. that you know if you feed them crap they're getting crap but if you're giving them the good stuff there's a reason why it's the good stuff. Yeah,
1: definitely. And, you know, I definitely think my job as a teacher is to, is in some ways, just to kind of reveal, if it's not immediately mm-hmm. obvious, you know, how awesome this stuff is and kind mm-hmm. of let them go from there, you know?
0: Yeah, because I think once they find that there's, there's so many layers of things to get and that every time they reread a poem or a text, they go, oh, my God, I never saw that before. Yeah. You know, then it becomes a puzzle to put together or right. a scavenger hunt or something much more interesting than okay, read changes thirty nine to eighty tonight. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, that that is I definitely agree. I think, you know, with something I I think the romantics are not necessarily easy to read. They they no. sometimes seem deceptively easy, like this to a skylark seems like it's just this nice little poem about a bird, right? Um, yeah. But once you actually, I mean, that's where, like, analysis comes in, right, where you, you start to show yep. them, like, it's not just a nice little poem about a bird. It's, you know, showing all these, you know, just probing these really important deep questions about the human condition. I mean, you know, it sounds lofty, but it's true. And, and getting them to, to sort of see that it totally relates to them, you know. Um yeah. And they, they yeah, will. Yeah, and it does. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They, they'll they find that, too, I think, if they're willing to, to find that.
3: Well,
0: aside from the fact that Shelley and Keats were buddies and that they were both real hot <laughs> and, and that they both died young and that they probably both spent quite a bit of time drinking and
4: yeah. playing around. Wow.
0: Um, <laughs> and both tortured souls. Um, one of the one of the comments that you you sent was that you saw a really good pairing between the the Wordsworth and the Coleridge poem and then also between Shelley's to a Skylark and Keats' Ode to a an, um, Nightingale mm-hmm. and where do you see the connections between those two poems?
1: Well I think just that they are writing on a similar subject they're both you know addressing a bird um, a Skylark in Shelley's case and a Nightingale in, in Keats's case and they're kind of using the bird as a, as an opportunity to meditate about um, you know, the limitations of, of human consciousness and the ways in which nature transcends that. Um, and they both, again, they do express similar ideas in that they both are very aware that to be human is, is to be in pain, essentially. So mm-hmm. Shelley says, um, we, meaning humans, our sincerest laughter with some pain is fraught. Our sweetest songs are those that tell of saddest thoughts. So you know, always with humans, even if we're laughing, we're we're crying. You know, um, and mm-hmm. the bird is not like that. The bird is transcendent. Um, it's a blithe spirit, and, and Shelley really wants to learn from the bird. Like that's the kind of the refrain is teach us, you know, teach me um, how you're so joyful, so transcendent, um, how you're so divine. And C- Keeps wants the same thing, but I feel like in his poem, there's, again, as with Coleridge, there's much more of a recognition of that this will never happen, you know, I'll yeah. never learn what, you know, the secret is behind the nightingale's uh, transcendence. Um, he says he wants to fly to the away to the nightingale on the viewless wings of Posey, but he can't and so by the end of the poem he's um you know, the music is gone, the vision is gone, and uh he, he's not gonna get there essentially. Whereas you get with Shelley, at least in this poem, he feels like maybe there's a possibility of getting there.
0: So Yeah, it's it's interesting because I've always I've always thought of Shelley as being um he's he's brooding mm-hmm. but he's not Hopeless, and yeah. there's something even about like Ozymandias, which I think is one of the most damning poems mm. of of history, mm-hmm. and and of certainly rulers in history, as far as as hubris goes. Which is which is a word my seven year old already knows. Woo-hoo, all right, <laughs> yeah. he'll be watching the news with me and go, "Well, that's hubris." Oh, that's good, awesome. good boy. <laughs> oh. But but there's even something, and maybe it's just the language that Shelley employs, but. There's even something about Ozymandias, something about, I guess, somebody noticing that this happened and commenting on the irony that makes you think, well, the next time it won't happen like this. Mm -hmm. You won't get someone who's so full of himself that he thinks that he'll be able to make himself last forever by building some kind of monument. Yeah,
1: Yeah, the idea that we could learn from past mistakes, that we Mm -hmm. could learn from the Skylark about how to be less you know, in pain, (laughs) essentially. Right,
0: right. And I do, uh, you know, that there's, and I don't actually know what the final scholarship is. I have a, there's um, one of our listeners' sons just finished studying Frankenstein, Mm -hmm. and he was very, very adamant that we not use the revised Frankenstein that Mary Shelley revised years later, Mm -hmm. that we use the original because they changed the ending, evidently, which I didn't know. I didn't know that either yeah so i'm gonna have a conversation with him next week but um huh. i know that there are there's a camp that believes that percy wrote or at least revised much of frankenstein and i can see the argument for that
1: mm-hmm.
0: because that you certainly every once in a while the language just sounds like him mm-hmm. but then at the same time she's married to the guy yeah and all they do is talk about this stuff and write poetry so i I don't know if I buy that. I have a feeling that because her mom was—I don't—I don't,
2: a I don't darn know about that, too. and
1: and I don't know enough about the you know the publication history of it or their relationship, and and probably some of it is is just not provable. But yeah. I as a I'm, I'm very much into you know women's studies. It's one of the things that I teach. But sure. I bristle at the suggestion that. Mm-hmm. That naturally you know she had to have help from her mm-hmm. from her husband because it just seems like lady. you
0: know a claim that's been made throughout history to me yep um well and and there are there are parts of Frankenstein that I've always felt a guy just couldn't have written. Mm-hmm. there's something something about the way that Victor is written that requires more of an external view mm-hmm than someone who's on the inside. Yeah, and he. Well, I just think Frankenstein's brilliant, but it
1: is. I I think really interestingly, my husband probably would not appreciate me saying this, although. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> we won't tell actually him. Um, we're going to listen to Frankenstein on CD recently in the car because we have a long commute together, and um, he just didn't like it. He was like, "Oh, you can you know this is so romantic, essentially, and with a cap with a capital <laughs> R." You know, right. he was like, ah, oh, it's, it's too internal, it's too, you know, and Tortured. he didn't say feminine. But right. in a sense, that is what we associate with femininity a lot of times, right? That femininity is associated with emotion and introspection and all of that stuff. And masculinity Absolutely. is reasonable and logical and all that stuff. Um,
0: Absolutely.
1: So, you know, in that sense, it's, it's a feminine kind of style.
0: And it's definitely a moon book. Uh-huh. you know it's something it is it is of the night it's impossible to think of frankenstein and not picture the majority of it taking place with a full moon mhm i can see that and it's that. and i know the moon has been associated with women sure. historically for for many moons sure sure there's there's also i think did your did your husband ever get past walton's letters we
1: uh, we did get to the point where um, Frankenstein was on board the ship and he starts telling the story of his youth and, you know, his relationship with Elizabeth and blah, blah, blah. And so, yeah, but he had a real hard time with, yeah, with the um, yeah.
0: beginning. He was like, what is Those this? Letters, just writing to his I, sister. What's going on? Why is he going on <laughs> and on about needing a friend? Yeah. I, and I am anticipating that people are going to drop out of the podcast like, rats leaving a sinking ship if I don't break into the narrative all through those going, it's almost over. <laughs> yeah, I think he just have to over. set it
1: up, you know, because it's not yeah. necessarily what people expect when they go into Frankenstein. No. They're probably thinking if they haven't read the book, they're not anticipating this frame narrative, yeah. you know. They're just thinking it's going to be the Frankenstein story. and
0: Yeah, where's the monster?
1: Yeah, exactly. Monster. He does, and it's he does tr- appear no not, to, not too long into it.
0: Yeah, no, and and there is no question that the monster is, he's the reason that you read the book, because he's, he's not a monster. Yeah, you know, he, Victor's the monster, and it's much more important to get the, the monsters, the creations point of view. Right, right. But that, that kind of brings us back to Keats, is that I've always seen a parallel between the monster and Keats. Really? That, that Keats is damaged goods for, for lots of reasons. He was sickly. He, he had a very difficult time. He, he always seemed to know he was going to die young. Yeah. And I've just seen kind of that same, um, I, you know how, when you're talking to someone who is terminally ill and they know they're going? Yeah. There is a different look in their eye. Mm -hmm. There is something about them that has made their peace with the universe on some level, whether they, whether they accept that they're going to go or are unhappy about it. There is, there is an understanding that most of us just don't walk around with. Mm -hmm. And I always imagined it was in Keats and I always picked it up from the monster. Yeah. That he, you know, he knew he was created and he knew that this was a limited thing. Right. Right. And whether he was going to kill himself or die, drop dead after killing Victor, you know, who knew, Right. but that he's, they're both damaged goods.
1: That's really interesting. I, I never thought of that comparison, but it seems to work. I mean, um, in that sense, you could say that Keats and the monster are more fully human, more human, more aware of what the human condition really is about than certainly than mm-hmm. Frankenstein. I mean, Frankenstein the whole novel is about his sort of recognition of his well hubris,
0: <laughs> and uh, but <laughs> yes. also
1: I think his real limited understanding of what it really yeah. means to be human.
0: Um, yeah, he kind of has that Faustian outlook, like, well, in order to be human, I have to be God. Yeah, yeah, and and it's a it's a mistake.
1: Yeah, and whereas you know, in *Ode to Nightingale*, Keats is so conscious of what it means and but to think is to be full of sorrow. It's like, oh man <laughs> Yeah. And I think his it says in my book that his tom his brother Tom was had died of tuberculosis the winter before mm-hmm. he wrote this and so when he's thinking about youth growing pale and Spectre thin and dying he's he's thinking it's about that. And potentially of his that, own death as well.
0: Yeah. I do remember that about his brother now that you mentioned that and, and that this came came close to that time, which is, I mean, it's, I think it's hard for us to remember how up until, what was it, 1937 or something like that, death was on your doorstep. Mm. You know, if your, if your child got the flu, it was, I mean, what was it? Some, something like 10%, 20%? It was huge yeah. of New York City was wiped out by the flu epidemic in the teens. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: There was, we were all much closer to death, both because people died at home as well as people died young and they died often.
1: Yeah, very true. So it
0: was, um, it makes a lot of sense that this would have been on their minds. And yet in our, in our modern view, a lot of these poems have come to be associated with tortured teenage (laughs) poetry. And it's very hard to think of a, of a teenager who, who gets everything at this level. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think that's really important to remember, and that's something that I always talk about in my Shakespeare classes because, you know, they might think, well, why is Hamlet so freaking obsessed with death? You know, why is death (laughs) so omnipresent in these plays? And it's it's like, well, during this period, you know, the plague was was a fact of life. It was something that people walked around with the consciousness of. You know, we just don't have that. We fortunately, we're very fortunate. And in, yes. in that light, I suppose you could say that, you know, women in particular stood a good chance of dying in childbirth in previous yes. centuries. And from that light, I know Frankenstein has often been looked at as a kind of fear of birth, you know, or, or you know, a kind of fear of the feminine capacity to, to birth. Um, right. So in that light, I mean, you could totally look at it from that point of view.
0: Well, and did, did Mary Wollstonecraft die in childbirth or just when... Mary Shelley was young. I don't know about that, actually. Um, I can't remember if it was a childbirth death or not. When she died... Boy, that would be
1: interesting. uh, I feel like I should have that in my book, but I don't know if if Wollstonecraft is in here. Um, Yeah, I don't remember. hmm, uh, Wait. She died in 1797. Actually, she was 40. So,
0: not... It's a little old.
1: You know, young, but... Certainly not old.
0: Yeah. Mary must have been a kid. Um, and and then of course there's the Mary Shelley and and Keats or Mary Shelley and and Percy Shelley's um very interesting getting together relationship and Shelley's previous wife and Right. They had the they had the inquest papers at the Shelley and Keats Museum. They had photostats of the original papers from England. Really? Where they you know, they brought him up from Italy to be at the inquest because his wife was found floating in the Thames or his previous wife really? I don't think they ever got officially divorced I think he left and she she wound up face up and there was some question as to whether he was directly responsible hmm. and they found not not so much directly responsible but they think that she was so depressed that he'd taken off that she jumped Right. and, uh, and then he hooked up I think he'd already hooked up with Mary at that point
1: who was very young right? I mean a teenager yes Yes. oh you're she right you're right she died Mary Wollstonecraft died uh-huh. I think giving birth to Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley because Shelley was she born was in older. 1797 and, and Mary Wollstonecraft died in
0: 1797 Ah. there you go well then that whole birth the the fear of birthing or the problems with birth thing makes and also the the desire to be able to bestow life Mm-hmm. Just as a as a theme. You know, to be able to bring back the, the dead. Right.
1: No, this Makes, you're right. Sense. Wollstonecraft died as a re- result of childbed fever incurred when she gave birth to Mary.
0: That was it. And it
1: also notes huh. that um when Shelley and Mary you know, hooked up, uh within a few months Mary was pregnant. So and that she That's gave birth right. to a premature daughter who lived only a few weeks.
0: Ugh. Oh, so God. Yeah horrible. Yeah. And of course, premature by a few weeks now is nothing is doable. Yeah, that's yeah. totally. Yeah. I mean, it's always scary, but at least it's it's plausible. Yeah. Ay ay ay. They did have a difficult time of it. It's it's important to remember that their um their kind of woe-begotten uh, attitudes are in large part valid.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. No, it's an important point, it's,
0: I think. It's such interesting stuff. Mm. Did you, one of the things that I used to do when I was teaching in New York City was to teach, um, I, I taught the greatest hits lines so that if if we read Thoreau, I made sure that the kids knew Thoreauvian lines that people would toss around in casual conversation uh-huh. so that when they were out in the adult world, they'd be able to follow I called it teaching by inside joke.
1: Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> you, you know, if somebody's an adulterer and somebody says, well, she's nothing but a Hester Prynne, right. the kids were going to get the joke. Right. So with Wordsworth, I know there's trailing clouds of glory in Intimations of Immortality, mm-hmm. but are there any other greatest greatest hit lines that you can think of that show up in any of these four four poems that people should listen for?
1: Well, Hail offhand? to the blithe Spirit. and oh, yeah. Um, already with the tender is the night from... Night, the Nightingale,
4: mm-hmm.
1: and those are really, I guess, just because they gave their titles to other literary other works. Books. Yeah. Um, but they're good. And the, <laughs> yeah, the, the, I guess, uh, Thou was not born for death, a mortal bird is one of those lines that kind of sticks out, as well as um, the Splendor in the, Gra- the Grass line.
0: Oh my gosh, that's right.
1: From the Immortality Ode. So, that's right. That's the only, only ones I can think of.
0: And uh, Elizabeth and I veered off into Shakespeare and King Lear and Merchant of Venice and all sorts of fabulous conversations, including the fact that Chip, our fab, no, not Chip, Andy Minter is reading Lear in a LibriVox version. So we may have some King Lear in our future, but that's another conversation for another day. In the meantime, here we are going to have Ode. To A Nightingale by John Keats and Ode to a Skylark by Percy Bysshe Shelley. I think I got that right. Uh, we're going to do Shelley first and we're going to end with Keats.
2: Here we go. Ode to a Skylark. Ode to a Skylark by Percy Bysshe Shelley, 1792 to 1822, is usually assigned to grammar grades of schools. It is included here out of respect to a boy of eleven years who was more impressed with these lines than with any other lines in any poem. Hail to thee, blithe spirit, bird thou never wert, that from heaven or near it pourest thy full heart in profuse strains of unpremeditated art. Higher still and higher from the earth thou springest, Like a cloud of fire, the blue deep thou wingest, And singing still dost soar, and soaring ever singest. In the golden lightning of the sunken sun, O'er which clouds are brightening, thou dost float and run, Like an unbodied joy, whose race is just begun. The pale purple even melts around thy flight, Like a star of heaven in the broad daylight, Thou art unseen, but yet I hear thy shrill delight. All the earth and air with thy voice is loud, As when night is bare from one lonely cloud The moon rains out her beams, and heaven is overflowed. What thou art we know not, what is most like thee, From rainbow clouds there flow not drops So bright to see as from thy presence Showers a rain of melody. Like a poet hidden in the light of thought, Singing hymns unbidden till the world is wrought to sympathy, With hopes and fears it heeded not. Teach us, sprite or bird, what sweet thoughts are thine. I have never heard praise of love or wine That panted forth a flood of rapture so divine. Chorus hymeneal or triumphal chant, "'matched with thine, would be all but an empty vaunt, "'a thing wherein we feel there is some hidden want. "'What objects are the fountains of thy happy strain, "'what fields or waves or mountains, "'what shapes of sky or plain, "'what love of thine own kind, what ignorance of pain? "'Teach me half the gladness that thy brain must know, "'such harmonious madness from my lips would flow, The world should listen then, as I am listening now. Percy Biss Shelley
0: All right, so there is Skylark,
2: and now we switch to
0: Keats and the Nightingale. And remember, this was written after his younger brother
4: died. Ode to a Nightingale by John Keats. Read for LibriVox.org by Jason Oakley. Brisbane, Australia, www.bangrocks.com my heart aches in a drowsy numbness Pains, my senses, though of hemlock, I had drunk, Or emptied some dull opiate to the drains, One minute passed, and lethwards had sunk, Tis not through envy of thy happy lot, But being too happy in thine happiness, That thou light-winged dryad of the trees, In some melodious plot of beech and green, And shadows numberless, singest of summer In full-throated ease. Oh, for a draught of vintage that thou had been cooled along age in the deep-delved earth, tasting of flora and the country green, dance and provencal song and sunburnt myth! Oh, for a beaker full of the warm south, full of the true, the blushful Hippocrine, with beaded bubbles winking at the brim and purple mouth that I might drink, and leave the world unseen, and with thee fade away into the forest dim." Fade far away, dissolve and quite forget What thou among the leaves hast never known The weariness, the fever and the fret Here, where men sit and hear each other groan Where palsy shakes a few sad last grey hairs Where youth grows pale and spectre thin and dies Where but to think is to be full of sorrow and leaden eyed despairs where beauty cannot keep her lustrous eyes or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow away away for i will fly to thee not charioted by bacchus and his pards but on the viewless wings of posy through the dull brain perplexes and retards already with thee tender as the night and haply the queen moon is on her throne Clustered around by all her starry fays, But here there is no light, Save from what heaven is with the breezes blown, Through verdurous glooms and winding mossy ways. I cannot see what flowers are at my feet, Nor what soft incense hangs upon the boughs, But in embalmed darkness, guess each sweet, Wherewith the seasonable month endows, the grass, the thicket, and the fruit tree wild, White hawthorn, and the pastoral eglantine, Fast fading violets covered up in leaves, And mid-May's eldest child, The coming musk rose full of dewy wine, The murmurous haunt of flies on summer eves. Darkling, I listen, and for many a time I have been half in love with eastful death, Called him soft names in many amused rhyme, To take into the air my quiet breath. Now more than ever seems it rich to die, To cease upon the midnight with no pain, While thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad In such an ecstasy. Still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, To thy high requiem become a sod. Thou wast not born for death, immortal bird, no hungry generations tread thee down. The voice I hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown, perhaps the selfsame song that found a path through the sad heart of Ruth, when, sick for home, she stood in tears amid the alien corn, the same that oft-time hath charmed magic casements, opening on the foam of perilous seas in fairy lands forlorn. Forlorn, the very word is like a bell to toil me back from thee to my soul's self adieu the fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do deceiving elf adieu adieu thy plaintive anthem fades past the near meadows over the still stream up the hillside and now 'tis buried deep in the valley glades was it a vision or a waking dream fled is that music do i wake or sleep
0: All right, don't freak out if you didn't understand all of the poems. You may want to go back and listen to them again because they do kind of stand up to that kind of scrutiny. Um, We are going to be talking more and more about the romantics and what it means to be called a romantic between now and, well, the end of Frankenstein, because it really does kind of matter uh, that you have a very clear picture of who these people were and what kinds of themes they tended to write on and how they tended to write. So... This is our first step into the larger Frankensteinian world, and I hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly had a wonderful time chatting with Elizabeth and had to cut out a good 20 minutes of our conversation because it really would have been probably boring to you, but it was fascinating to us. Um, I have produced two podcasts this week, and I am now going to go to sleep. I'll talk to you later. Have a great week. support craftlit go to knittingoutloud.com listen while you knit you can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com or craftlit.libsyn.com that's craftlit c r a f t l i t all one word and libsyn l i b s y n and of course you can subscribe at itunes Craftlet is supported by the generous donations of its listeners and for that I am truly grateful. And do remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.